ever so much for letting me interview you, Tony. Tony, you were a, uh, a BBC engineer, but you were a music engineer in the 1970s, 80s and 90s, wasn't it, I guess? Uh, a TV uh, and sound supervisor, I think, yep. was the way you, you told me. That's what they used to call me. So the... When they were being polite. <laughs> so the main thing, I guess, is I, I'm, I was fascinated with the idea of actually being able to talk to you about all of this. Again, I keep meeting people who, who drop these little snapshots that ignite my my uh, my mind into uh, imagining the world that they've worked in and the career that they've had. And I've been fascinated to hear some of the stories you've you've told me already, including working on a lot of major BBC productions in the in the seventies and eighties. So this interview for me is is very much wanting to to understand what it was like working in sound and what it was like working for the, a big corporation uh, producing such immense TV like the, like the BBC, mm. but also to truly understand what it was like to work alongside uh, famous characters that we all know and love from, from TV, as well as understanding exactly how nerve-wracking it must have been doing live production and, and other aspects as well, I guess. So what I want to do to start off this, this conversation is start by asking you to set the scene of how you began to, to do this. Because it's not very easy for someone to just walk in and, be, and become a BBC sound engineer. And it's got more difficult. <laughs> I bet it is. So can you just set the scene and explain to me like where you came from, how you managed to even even get to where you did, and, and, and uh, what uh, specific sort of um, experiences that you had? Born and brought up in a little Cornish country vicarage, rectory, sorry. Um, eventually thought I'd be a cathedral organist the way adolescents do. Uh, I screwed that up by failing music A-level, and in, in a fit of desperation parents pointed me at the BBC as being a respectable employer that uh, they wouldn't feel they had to apologise for their son. So, <laughs> so with this in mind we went on, on a holiday the way in those days um, clergy used to. They didn't have a holiday, they had a busman's holiday. They just swapped vicarages and did minimal duty in somebody else's seat so to speak. And so I had a fortnight's change of scene. And so your father's a vicar? Yeah, and a vicar in Cornwall, yeah. and then Down essentially, the and, and then took took you on holiday, so to speak. Yeah, to London. To London. <laughs> uh, usually the other way around, isn't it? But there you go. It was a change, and uh, we we had a, um, a vicarage in St John's Wood. We were staying in. Uh, and he suggested I went down and had a word with the BBC while I was there because I was a bit at a loose end about what I was going to do after Christmas when I would have left school. So uh, he rang on my behalf, engineer recruitment in the BBC, got an interview for me. Uh, they discovered that I knew Ohm's Law, for the technically inclined, it really doesn't matter. Um, and I was told to start in the following January, which I did. So I went home and worked on a farm. <laughs> The greatest of training to be a sound Absolutely, engineer. absolutely. Well, you don't mind getting cold and wet then because you've had some practice. <laughs> <laughs> but the way things panned out, I never did work other than very occasionally on the road. I was always studio-based. Um, nowadays, people tend to specialise less until they get to the top of the tree, so to speak. 
uh, and they'll do a cross-section of work indoors and outdoors. But in those days, you, you tended to go down one road or the other. So an, out, <coughs> an outdoor uh, Outside event. broadcast outside or studios. Okay. Yeah, so and I was studios. Um, and I worked my way up through this. Oh, yes, another little snippet. Uh, when you first join, you, you join a studio crew, which consists of uh, about six or seven camera staff and three sound staff. And then there will be uh, a senior cameraman who runs the crew. And in my case, this was a chap called Mike Bond, or Michael Bond, who you've probably heard of in connection with Paddington Bear. Ah. That Michael Bond. No way. Yes. And he started writing the books about then. And one of his assistant cameramen did all the illustrations then. So it was very much a sort of family business. Anyway, Mike was a, he was a really nice guy. I had, a, a, I won't say trouble, but I was surprised at the informality and, and first name terms throughout the organisation. Um, David Attenborough, for example, who I did meet a, within my first year there, assumed that he would be referred to as David, not Mr Attenborough. And he would use your Christian name to talk to you. Right. And I'd just come from a boys' boarding school where it was surnames only. You know, it was a culture shock. Anyway, it was it was a culture shock in the right direction. It's comfortable. Oh, no, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, so, so what was your uh, so, so you might, how did you get the job then? Did you just? It sounds to me like it was a lot easier, perhaps. To I fell into it. <laughs> <laughs> it oh, all sorts of things came into this. Um, it turned out that my father had a connection with the chap who was interviewing me, albeit distant. Um, I think they went to the same college at university or something like that. They didn't know each other before then. But, uh, so that was something for them to talk about. And I, I sat and drummed my fingers in the background. Um, then I was sent in with a couple of technical people to see whether I did know anything technical. And I apparently knew enough. And they just said, yeah, start in January. Now, one thing I would say about Auntie Beebe, um, and this isn't really in any sense for my ego, but my experience of the organisation was that the one thing they almost invariably got right was recruitment, because everybody got on with everybody else. Quite remarkably so. Now you normally reckon there are going to be factions and, and um, sort of minor warfare going on between departments and between individuals within... None of that. Everybody pulling in the same direction. Wow, that's really nice to know. And I think... It's because they took care to recruit people who convinced them that they really wanted to do that job. And we had, later on, uh, horrendous hours, minimal overtime payments initially. That was sorted in the end. But nobody would have dreamt of going home before the job was finished. Despite the fact you've gone maybe an hour past your booked off time, which was already 10 o'clock at night, people would still stay, I think willingly. That's fine. I think um, one of the factors is because of uh, it's prestigious. And I think we need to rewind back for everybody yep. listening to the fact that you would have had BBC, you'd have had ITV, and you, you'd have had literally nothing else other than a, a, a two or three channels at the very most. Yep. I mean, when I was a, a boy in the uh, late 70s, you know, there, there, there was no Channel 4. There, no. Was, there, was, there was just BBC One, BBC Two and ITV and that That's was right. it. Yeah. And you got to 11.30 and that was the end. Uh, and, and there was no 24-hour TV like there is now. I, I, I wish it would go back, to be honest, to being like that, I must admit. <laughs> yes. 
this dire the way TV is right now. I couldn't agree more. So did you have any ambition once you realised that you were now in this in this uh, large corporation with such meaning? Did you, did you did you feel really fired up to 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 head into a specific yeah. career? My first day proper in the organisation, the first two or three days, we were just shown round the various premises in London. And then on the Monday of the following week, <coughs> we went into a television studio on our first television crew, which is a collection of cameramen and sound people. First day um, of real work was a Billy Cotton band show. Now, I don't know how many people who listen to this are old enough to remember the Billy Cotton band show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember was, the Billy no, Cotton No, you band probably show. wouldn't. Um, it came out of the end of the Second World War, and it was a, a radio variety programme originally with Billy Cotton's show band, big band and guest artists, comedians and singers and this sort of thing. Uh, and it translated onto television and was incredibly dated. And I went into the sound control room because I was on sound initially, although I latterly did a spell on cameras. Uh, and I saw this rotund fella sitting at this enormous expensive toy, which is a sound control console. And uh, he said, hello, I'm Hugh. I said, Oh, here I'm turning. It turned out that he went on holiday about eight miles from where I'd grown up in Cornwall oh, well. every year. <laughs> what did you come to London for? He said. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I immediately thought, I like this guy, and what's more, I like the thought of doing what he's doing because he has the ultimate control over the sound content of whatever he's working on. He tells his crew to do whatever he wants them to do. He takes the output up the wire from their devices. He mixes it all. Um, and it's, the sound is by Q. Wow, yeah. yeah and I, and it's, it's, it was an ambition for a tender 18-year-old. Did you, did you find <coughs> that the pathway to being Hugh was in any way achievable at that point did you think that in other words because everybody imagines yeah. the whole the whole studio environment is that you're a tea boy yeah yeah was it similar yes i did an awful lot of coiling of cables and clearing cables and rigging things and not actual operation of anything for the first month or six weeks or so and gradually you're let in very gently and and, and helped during downtime for example uh, you'd be stood on a a microphone boom for what people people who don't know about it is a thing that looks a bit like a mechanical giraffe in that it has a very long neck which is telescopic at the end of which is a microphone and the operator stands at one end on a platform with a winch device for extending and retracting the arm and a twist device to point the microphone in whatever direction and uh, off you go into battle <laughs> it's an acquired skill but uh, everybody can learn it um, so you do a bit of that. Uh, then the next step up really was uh, doing tape and gram work, as it was referred to. We were still in the relatively early days of tape recorders because um, there weren't any in the UK much before the war. Most of what we got was ex-German. We, we took it over when we trampled over Germany. Um, and uh, I, it's re recording sound effects music for playing into your television program that you're working on yeah so there was an element of the job that was somewhere else either in gram library picking up effects and music whatever 
and then come into studio and, and play it into the programme. And you, for the first time, have a little bit of autonomy because although you're sitting just behind boss man's shoulder, back from the sound desk, he's so busy doing his bit that he rather relies on you doing your bit properly and leaves you to it. And you have a fair amount of freehold and that's very satisfying for a 19-year-old by then. <laughs> I I, um, I immediately thought then of the the BBC. Was it called Sound Workshops or something uh, like that? Radiophonic workshops. Radiophonic yes. workshops. Well, I mean, th- there we go again. I mean, be patient. Because <laughs> I always remember when I first began getting into audio of any kind. Yeah. You know, you would pick up um, you know thirty uh, threes. Uh, uh, you know, long play records. Yeah. And, and a lot of the music that that came out of the BBC would be done from there. And mm-hmm. and also the um, the, the, a lot of the TV shows relied heavily on things like analog synthesizers. Oh, and, yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and, and like, if we could take, Doctor for example, Who. Doctor Who. Worked on Doctor Who. You worked on Doctor Who? I did uh, one of the fairly early ones with Bill Hartnell in the part. Oh, yeah. Um, that was when I was still calling cables. <laughs> and by the time my um, relation with Doctor Who finished, I'd actually been sound supervisor on four or five series in the studio and had been dubbing after the studio, putting on sound effects and music on top of shows that other people had done the studio bit of. So I would go to Radiophonic Workshop and chat to, by then it was Dick Mills who looked after all the sound for Doctor Who that was electronic in origin. And we'd spend a pleasant morning drinking coffee and assembling raw material for me to play in to the studio. Wow. Um... Famous names from Radiophonic Workshop, I suppose Delia Derbyshire is probably the most famous. She composed the Doctor Who, Doctor Who signature tune. And it's been modified and added to a bit, but it's still essentially the same tune. That was her composition? That was her composition wow. in 1960, not very much. I, I was really amazed to find out that a lot of the Dalek voices were actually ring modulations. Yes. Sorry, very um, crude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just the most frightening thing oh, when yeah. you're a, when you're a six year old. Yeah, I was I was pretty scared by all that. I must admit, probably like many other fifty ish year old men uh, <laughs> yes. when they, when when they were kids in the in the seventies. But the I think that's one of the things that I truly remember about that era of TV is that it could be really very tame and extreme yes. at the same time. Yes, that's right. Yes, it was. Uh, the cracks all showed. It was string and ceiling wax, and you were actually quite aware of this at times. Somebody leant against the wall of a, a supposed building, and it swung in the breeze, and this sort of thing. Uh, but actually, the quality of the writing and the acting overcame this, and you just still became absorbed and terrified, or whatever. So, describe to me some of the equipment you worked with and the sorts of things you worked with. You, know, you mentioned sort of like tape recorders. I mean, the really important thing for people to understand here is that this was this was a lot of audio infancy in the same oh, sense. Yes. There, were hu- there was a huge push of technology as we went from the 60s into the 70s. Uh, I mean, for, for me personally, as a guitar player, I, I, I always liken things like, if you, if you look at the kinks or you look at the shadows, mm-hmm. they were playing these small little 2x12 uh, mm-hmm. combo amplifiers. And then in the mid-60s, you get the push into the sort of the Marshall half stack, yes. and then it becomes into the yeah. full stack. And yeah. that spawns things like Pete Townsend and Jimi Hendrix. So, so technological advancement in that sense is absolutely critical to the development of music. And also 
studio technology must have been advancing pretty rapidly at that stage. Yes. When I first joined, all the studio equipment, I'm not talking about microphones, but the built-in equipment, was BBC designed and manufactured. Wow. Um, With a very few exceptions, there was a, a Philips device that we used, but most of it was BBC designed. Um, as the years went by, uh, the lead time on the BBC design effort became so long that by the time what they designed was manufactured, it was five years out of date. <laughs> and somebody finally realised that the recording and broadcast industry outside in the big bad world had been born and matured and producing kit commercially that was just what we wanted and rather better than we were producing because it was current. Yeah. So, yeah, times of very great change. And then, of course, uh, when you get to the late 80s and 90s, the advent of digital sound and all that enabled people to do as well. And now, in fact, for the last several years, anybody can go out in the street and buy for not much more than 100 quid something that will produce a broadcast quality sound record. In fact, video recording as well. Yeah, I mean, for for three or four hundred pounds, you get the camera as well, and it records at virtually broadcast quality. We couldn't have believed this if people had told us that in the sixties. <laughs> ah, you're mad! <laughs> I remember seeing those enormous great cameras that whenever you would get a, a back shot of the TV studio that something was going on in, they would have these gigantic cameras, these enormous great things that had huge lens hoods on, and they they were very boxy, weren't they? Yes, they were, that's right, yes. (laughs) And the zoom lens, a studio zoom lens, which would have been um, variously a 5 to 1 or 10 to 1 ratio, um, would be, well, about 70 centimetres long, I suppose, and... Uh, 20 by 15 in section and a one man lift but he needed to be strong (laughs) and that bolted onto the camera so working in television is a dream job for a lot of people and it must have been a lot of fun it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun and that was sufficient to make up for the inconveniences and believe it or not they're not terribly good money in those days it really wasn't that somehow didn't matter because being at work was a bit like playing. You know, it was fun. So you've given me a small list here of some of the things that you worked on. And, I mean, notable ones straight away. I, I want to talk about porridge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, in my relative infancy as a sound supervisor, I'd now progressed to the bloke sitting at the expensive toy mixing everything. Yeah. Um, I hadn't done any situation comedy and my head of department decided it was about time in my career that I did and there was this new series coming up with Ronnie Barker Um, and I was summoned to the office and he said, Tony, I'm going to take a bit of a gamble, I'm going to give you porridge. He said, "Um, it should be funny so they should laugh so you shouldn't have too many problems. (laughs) So I went along and I, I did the first programme of the first series of you did episode one episode series, series one, one episode, episode one. one yeah wow. I did I think I did two series sequentially and then uh, odds and sods of the next lot as people went ill or whatever filled in 
But the first one was, I was aware, was a baptism of fire. I'd never done an audience show before, and there are techniques as a mixer that you need to acquire, which you can only acquire on the job. You can't go home and practice in your bedroom. Uh, the trouble is that the client, which is, well, the clients, the talent, Ronnie Barker and his fellow actors, and the producer, and the head of light entertainment, and the head of sound, are all listening very carefully to what you're doing. And it's not quite, well, you may never work again, but you certainly may never do any situation comedy again if you get it wrong. On week two, I went along to what's called the outside rehearsal. All these shows are rehearsed in a church hall somewhere, a day or two before going into the studio. And they sort out all the acting problems and, and script changes and things like that. When they've got it more or less licked into shape, the technical guys, that's me and the lighting man and the senior cameraman, go along and have a look at it being acted out with tape marks on the floor to where the set's going to be. Um, so we get a rough idea of what's going to happen in the studio. And we can go back and we can book the equipment we know we're going to need. Uh, so I went along to the tech rehearsal for programme two, having done just programme one. And as I walked in, Ronnie Barker walked up to me and he said, Tony, nice job last week, well done. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I suddenly grew two feet. You know, I felt <laughs> load off shoulders. Wow. <clears throat> I can do this. So uh, it's very hard for me to understand if you take porridge, there's the scenes in, 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 the, in the cell, yes. there's all the scenes that seem to be in the prison yes. and other people's cells. How is this put together? And how I, I can't imagine like a mixing desk and loads of cables no. in a prison. No. The, the scenes in... The cell, we're all in studio, in a, a three-wall set. So one wall is not there. You can put the cameras in there. Yeah. Um, and then the corridor outside, you've got just that. You haven't got the big shot of the two or three stories of, of uh, cells. That's all on film. And that's been shot in one of Her Majesty's prisons. Right. So I forget which one they use. I think it was Wakefield, but I may be wrong. Um, so not all of the sound was controlled by me in components, so to speak. But I would obviously take in the mixed sound of, of film or, or videotape inserts and marry the joins, so to speak, into, into the studio thing. And the other big part of the job is making everything sound like it happened on the same day in the same place. Right. Quite difficult in this particular situation because you've got a very loud, echoic film set or fil film location, I should say, a real prison. And you're coming into what sounds like your well-crafted living room by comparison. Right. And so there's all sorts of adjustments you've got to make about, you know, trying to make it sound different but not ridiculously so, yeah? So when you get those shots of all of them and they're all in the prison yeah. and they're all playing cards and oh, dominoes... That, that may well be studio because the bit where they're playing cards can be contained. Ah. But I... Imagine that you, as part of the programme, you see somebody walking towards this area. That bit would probably be on film and they'd be walking through a real prison. They'd be seen opening a door, cut to studio, when they walk in. Yeah. So, so did you meet Mr Mackay? Oh, yes. <laughs> Fulton Mackay. What a wonderful character. <laughs> and what a wonderful character in the, in the script as well. I think Amazing. beautifully written. Beautifully written. <laughs> Wasn't he one of the only characters to actually have his surname 
Is Fulton Mackay was the was was he the character? No, he was the actor. I can't remember. But wasn't he? But he was called Mr. Mackay. He, he was. Yes. So he was the only one I know. Uh, yes. Mr. Yes, Barraclough wasn't Mr. Barraclough. No, no, that's he? right. That's right. You've obviously done your homework. Oh, that. I, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Or show. you had a misspent youth. <laughs> so good. Timing, delivery, everything yeah. about it well, was, was. Ronnie was a, a real master at this. Actually, you know, he went to RADA. No, I didn't know. Yeah, that. He's a, he was a, in musical terms, a classically trained actor. Um, and it showed uh, and you didn't do things twice for him on the whole he came he knew his lines um, he knew how to pitch the lines he knew how to steer a scene with other actors and this sort of thing he's absolute consummate professional and a joy to work with like most real professionals are and of course he went on to work on open all hours as well <laughs> yes yes <laughs> yes the lovely David Jason as well <laughs> that was that was his Baptism of Fire and Away because it was his first major comedy role. Um, that, that was quite fun in a different sort of way. And I shall never forget Nurse, what's her name? Saying, Gladys Emanuel. If you're going to touch me there, blow on your fingers first. <laughs> <laughs> As they climbed into the back of the van. Yeah. So good. I, I, the, the thing is, is I, I routinely, when I'm skipping channels, if I come across yesterday, yeah. I often, yeah. I will watch like a full episode or a few episodes of either. I, I think, I didn't really appreciate Open All Hours, I think, as greatly as I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, no, at the time it was much more run of the mill. There were, there were more shows like it around. But uh, I mean, I was like fifteen or something, so I'm not. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to like the things my mum and dad find particularly funny. No. But but now I, I look back on them and I think that they are just fantastic. And again, it was because he had this. Uh, Ronnie Barker had this amazing way of just redesigning himself with such subtlety. Yes, you loved him for who he was, and you loved the characters that he played because every character w- could be so different, but contained him. Mm. You know, even down to f- the the two Ronnies and the four, the candles, four candles and many yes. other things. You know, all <laughs> those characters were just such good it observations. Just convincing, wasn't it? So convincing. Yes. yes. So uh, let's let's flip over to. Uh, We'll call it live, although there was an awful lot of miming in it, which yeah. is Top of the Pops. Yes. We had, Top of the Pops was a sort of rite of passage for anybody in London television sound who had musical ambitions, wanted to go in the music area. And because there was one show a week, 52 weeks of the year, and I think over Christmas there was probably an extra one thrown in, there was a lot of material to be covered by the technical departments. And because there's a lot of local knowledge as well, not least of all, incidentally, of the styles of music in the charts at the time, so one had homework to do, uh, one tended to get allocated to this for months, if not a year at a time. Wow. And I went in, I forget which year it was now, it might have been 79 or 80, and I did 12 months' worth. Uh, At the time when... Electrolux, as they were referred to, or Ultravox, were in the chart. <laughs> Electrolux. <laughs> Bowie came in now and again. Um, oh, Jimi Hendrix. He turned up when he had a had a hit. I, I, I wasn't a supervisor then. I was working on the show as a tape, be, tape operator. That would have been late 60s, yeah? That would have been late 60s, wow. yes. That would have been about 68 or 69. Yes. So you've seen Jimi Hendrix? Oh, yeah. How fantastic. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> he was playing to a back or miming to a backing track I would say uh, which was basically his single transferred to quarter inch tape and spun in at the appropriate time and he would mime to it 
and I was on the floor crew, not taping grounds at the time, sitting in the gallery during the dress run-through, uh, or at the end of the dress run-through, the tape op said, I'll be late coming to supper, I just want to tidy up the tapes. And so he, I don't know what he did because I wasn't there, but I know what he did because the results became apparent. When the director shouted cue tape for Jimi Hendrix's track, sound came out, music came out, but it wasn't Jimi Hendrix's track. He'd put them together in the wrong order. Oh, no. And Hendrix, bless his cotton socks, looked up as if to the gallery, yeah, the, the control room suite, saying, sorry, man, I don't know that one. <laughs> <laughs> And there was mad scrabbling around for the right backing track and the programme went on. And it was all edited out in the end, of course, and, and, and straightened up because we, we weren't live. We were recorded on a Wednesday for transmission on a Thursday. Uh, Jimi Hendrix did loads of BBC recordings, didn't he? Yes, I, he did. I, I yes. watched some black and white Jimi Hendrix right yeah. at the start. He was on the Lulu show. Yeah. And I remember seeing those, those performances just being absolutely magnetic. They're, they're incredible to watch. But the, yeah. but the, I mean, you, the other thing about working in things like Top of the Pops is that when I first really, uh, you know, it really got attention for me. I must have been like six years old, and I, yeah. and I remember the whole change of uh, the sort of like the, the the rock years going into the punk years and then the yeah. punk years going into the new romantic years yeah. so that would have been late 70s into early 80s and then I'm I'm about 10 years old and the one thing that I love it's almost paraphrasing an interview I saw with the Radiohead guitarist mm. he was saying how magical a time it was for music because you had so much variety you could yes. the, the top of the pops would be um, it would be uh, soft rock. It would be the Cure. It would be uh, you know a new romantics of different mm. kind, of, like more pop orientated, even perhaps. ballads. And, and then and then there would just be um, these sort of like strange oddball pop acts that would yeah. be in there as well. So you would, ha- and, and then I remember the movement into things like the Smiths in like 1983, I think mm-hmm. it was. Uh, you know, and just and, and and it was almost at the time when pop music had this real absurdity it was like it was it was um it was fashionable bordering on the, the you know absurd mm. extremes mm. and 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 it was so enlightening as a child to be watching all of this going on but what was it like to be working in it wonderful because of the variety the one thing i would say about 30 odd years i spent there i can truthfully say no two days were the same. I might go into the same studio I was in yesterday, but there would be different people, a different programme, whatever. The problems would be different. Uh, as a supervisor, my crew would be different, so I'd be working with different colleagues. And a great deal of variety, a uh, great deal of variety in programme types, as, as we've more or less said. Um, I mean, to, winding on a, a year and not very many... Um, after my year on top of the pops, I might have uh, a series of Doctor Who, for example, which is one program a week for thirteen weeks or six weeks, depending on the length of the series. <clears throat> and then, uh, if Thursday wasn't involved in that, I might be doing a top of the pops on the Thursday, on the Wednesday. I mean, for broadcast on the Thursday. So, variety is wonderful. You, you couldn't really get stale. Uh, and if there was an aspect of the job that wasn't pleasant. It was well watered down. 
I, I always remember the, the 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 early days of synth pop. Yeah. And watching bands coming on with their keyboard stands and their synthesizers with nothing plugged in. Playing the hell out of them, yes, I know. <laughs> it always used yeah. to enthrall me. I just kept thinking to myself, obviously it was just, that was just the way it was. Did, did they ever have live vocals? Oh, yes, yes. Um, certainly uh, up until early to mid-80s, mid I would say live vocals were more common than mime vocals. Uh, but live vocals would probably involve and increasing as time went by everything else being mined coming off tape so to speak so if, if you had a, a, a apparently a band on stage uh, the lead singer guitarist or lead keyboard player guitar uh, singer would be singing live but totally miming what he was playing uh, in the case of drummers this does lead to the problem because a live mic near a drummer is going to pick up the clatter of even a deadened kit a problem I'm now experiencing firsthand with a grandson who's going to be a drummer. Because <laughs> <laughs> you always see these. Uh, oh, I get it. Right, there's a drum kit underneath the uh, underneath the piano here, which is fantastic. <laughs> so it was always something I remember seeing. You would hear these like massive stadium level performance playing on the mm. drums, and then you'd look at the guy on the drums, and he would literally yes. just see. <laughs> tapping it with gently with his wrists etc yeah. but let's move on you yeah. went I mean we, we went to another um, another level up again I mean a, a much more um, you know a, cl a deeper look into music which was the old grey whistle test yes yes um, again originally the old grey whistle test happened in what was referred to as the presentation studio where the weatherman happened yeah uh, and there were two of those studios, Pres A and Pres B. Pres A was where the weather happened. Pres B, which was exactly a mirror of it, the other side of the party wall, uh, was used for very small programmes, amongst them Old Grey Whistle Test. Um, it had a tiny control console with seven faders on it. Now, that doesn't go very far to covering a live rock group so let's just look at this so if you've got seven is that seven mics that's it uh yes so you might you might import an auxiliary mixer which gives you an extra three four channel mixer but you'd have had one of those anyway because of the channel you've plugged it into so it's three extra so you might have ten so you've got ten mics so uh let's so just you, quickly let's yeah, quickly yeah, run okay. this well, up you've, so got a, you've got a, a lead vocal mic yeah you may or may not have backing vocal mics leave them out of the equation for the moment You've got an input for the bass, usually. Let's talk about guitars and keyboards, really, because that's mostly what whistle tests used to be. Okay. Yeah? Um, you've got a bass, you've got at least one other guitar and possibly two. So we're up to four so far if it's two. And bear in mind we're still in mono. Oh. Yeah. It would have been more difficult had we been in stereo. Uh, then there's keyboards outputs. Well, that's channel five for the first mono output of the keyboard. You probably have to take the stereo output and mono it yourself. Otherwise, you only get half of what the keyboard's of course. sending. Yeah. Um, then, uh, then there's a business of adding things like reverb and uh, wax technical for the moment, compression and special effects, all of which this equipment in those days was not easily capable of. You had to import rack loads of stuff and try and find a way of tailoring it into the system. Um, after... Uh, I guess about mid-70s, 
it moved downstairs to one of the main production studios and suddenly the sound man's life became a lot easier. Although it was more demanding because he could do more, at least he had the kit to do it. The thing that really amazes me is that you've just hit on a critical thing, which is you're mixing to mono. Yeah. You know, it, we all yeah. imagine that there would just be this like big PA and you'd have all this sort of like yeah. stereo field stuff and everything yeah. else, but this is all just mixed to mono. mono. Yeah, and, and the big problem about that is that it's the difference between painting, for example, in black and white or colour. And that's quite a good analogy because uh, in the sound side of the analogy, if you've got a stereo image, you can position things left to right across your image and your ears will pick out something. Even if it's not the loudest thing in the balance, it hears it because of where it is. And the other loud thing perhaps is going on somewhere else, so you can still hear it. In mono, you have only how loud it is. Everything has one volume control, it all comes out of one loudspeaker, and if anything in there isn't loud enough, you don't hear it at all. On the other hand, if you turn everything up to maximum volume, uh, the transmitter falls off the air, because you <laughs> And I don't, Jess. <laughs> Does it? Oh, it would do, yes. There are there were protection devices, but they were fairly crude to start with. And there were one or two instances of, of the level being such that the transmitter tripped out. Oh. Yeah. So, so that's a real... Oh, it's crude. It's crude. Oh, I mean, it's flying, medieval. It's flying for the seat of your pants, though, yeah. isn't it? It really is. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, it's what you grew up with, so it's normality, isn't it? So can you name any... And old... you see, somebody who, who's sitting in, in whistle test with... 10 faders in front of him and very minimal things he can do to the signal you tell him that 10-15 years down the line he'll be sitting in front of a 50 channel disc with comprehensive equalisation and dynamics on every single one of those 50 channels and he'll say you can't do that, it's too much for one man Yeah. no it isn't you just come to it gradually yeah. yeah. So you must have seen then a transition of analog audio going into digital audio. Yeah. So when did that really start to take hold within something like the BBC? Um, speaking personally, I had moved out of television program program studios into the BBC music recording studio by the time that happened, <clears throat> and I went in there when we had a we just got a 24-track, two-inch audio analogue recorder. Um, while I was there, we bought, or rather rented, and commissioned a prototype digital desk. First one in the UK. Uh, there was one in somewhere in mainland Europe. It was the first, I think. Uh, we had the first one in the UK. <clears throat> we ran on prototype software for... 18 months before they finally settled it, uh, on a bit of a knife edge of things crashing all the time, the way computers do. It's just a, a glorified computer. Wow. Yeah? And glorified to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in that 18 months, before the first permanent software version came up, we didn't lose a single session. Wow. No, we, did, we lost one for a very silly reason. <clears throat> Our entrance foyer to the, the studio suite uh, had a, a false ceiling above which there were some very large pipes about six inch diameter that carried hot water from the boilers into the rest of the building one of those ruptured <laughs> <laughs> 
So we had to empty the studio by the other exit. <laughs> I managed to shut the door into the equipment room where the digital desk's guts were. And luckily the leak wasn't over that, vertically over that, and that survived. But we did have to abandon the session. And we're talking how much value? Uh, well, the, uh, the orchestra would have cost, I suppose, six or seven grand for a three-hour session. But the actual desk itself? Oh, the desk survived. This was over the foyer, thank God. What if it had been if damaged? If it had been how over the desk it, how well, the then, and we're talking uh, late 70s, probably quarter of a million, third of a million. Wow. <laughs> In today's prices, you could stick a naught on the end of that. Wow. So three million. Yeah. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. So, can you remember any like really landmark performances in the old grey whistle test? I'm I'm a keen music buff, as you know. So, oh, right. To think of anything in particular that like really, really took you, you know, inspired you at the time. I was. What <laughs> fair- made you laugh? <laughs> I was. I was. I was fairly absorbed in solving the very big old grey whistle test problem in the early days of Dear Whispering Bob Harris who had no voice at all. He's a lovely guy, really really lovely guy, and knew his musical unends inside out and backwards. Always produced a good interview with the talent, always turned up with items of interest and this sort of thing. Uh, but he, you, you probably had to change the plugging on this little mini mixer desk I was describing earlier to make sure that you got his microphone plugged into a channel because you might have had to borrow it for the music. Yeah, yeah. all this on... As live, it was recorded, but it was recorded in entirety because editing was difficult or more difficult then. Um, that might entail going, uh, leaving a desk while things are running, going into the apparatus room and turning the gain on the amplifier for that channel to suit Bob, coming back, plugging his mic in. <laughs> a nightmare. Don't want to think about it. Don't want to think about it. And of course, when you finally get Bob sitting there talking at you, all you can hear is the what have you from the amplifiers and things that are in the studio no way you know he, he was only just loud enough to be heard a lot of the time is that right oh yeah, oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't realise I mean, he just seemed like he gave this sort of really intimate yeah, yes. kind of yeah. you know uh, description of what was happening for you but you know you can never get the mic close enough to his mouth <laughs> <laughs> um, oh Eurythmics I suppose did a did a, a Whistle test with Eurythmics, I guess. Um, and was invited into the dressing room afterwards for a glass of wine because I thought it had gone quite well, which I thought was very polite of them. <laughs> very nice of them. Yeah. Uh, spin-off from Whistle Test. One of the directors, um, or producers, I should say, uh, did other light entertainment things. And I did a number of specials. Um, Dr. Hook, for example. You may remember yeah. old... Uh, Country and Western Band, Dr. Hook, lovely couple of days in the studio with them, really lovely. Recording backing tracks first, and then playing back what I'd recorded in the studio and mixing voices with it and this sort of thing, or doing the entire thing live in the television studio. Very, it's quite demanding, but really good fun, lovely people to work with. Um, I, I, I think that the, the, the you know the multi track mm. and the, especially the digital multi track yeah. and the fact that you're you know you're not just putting a microphone mm. in a room with three people mm. and getting the performance mm. the fact that it's all gone the other way um, means that seeing the performance done in that way or mm. seeing a recording 
generated that way has become a real rarity now, hasn't it? Like to, to, I know that Jack White, if you take the White Stripes and all the stuff he's done with his third man record label, he did a series recently where he just got lots of people to come in. You've got a tape recorder, you've got a microphone, you've got to position yourself relation uh, yeah. relative to the microphone and then you just hit record and then you do it and you've got one go. Yeah. And that's it. And yeah. the stress yeah. of that brings out this yeah. really. And it, it either crashes in flames or you get a definitive performance out of it. You know, nowadays it's all computers and auto tune yeah. and do it again. And, you know, and it, it loses its immediacy, I guess. And you must have seen so much of that, all, all those levels of practice mm. coming to flower at those particular points. Uh, another aspect of this a lot of the acts on Whistle Test were from across the pond, American bands. And they would flatly refuse to do anything other than mime on American television because, by and large, the sound coverage they got over there was atrocious. Oh. And it didn't do them any good in, in terms of trying to sell their product. Uh, Whistle Test had a reputation of being acceptable from a sound point of view and just as well because they insisted that anybody who came into the studio played live. Never any miming. Wow. There might be filmed items, that's another matter, but anything in studio was live. So you you worked from 1965 mm-hmm. when obviously everything looked like Austin mm-hmm. Powers. <laughs> you do have a way with words. <laughs> <laughs> and then you worked until 1997 when you retired aged 51 from your role at the BBC. Yeah. Yeah. From then on... You went on to set up your own recording, music recording company. Yeah, c- c- can I just cover a little bit? The, the, the last nine or ten years I was in the Beeb, I was out of television altogether and just in what was effectively our own commercial recording studio. Okay. Uh, I went in there as one of two people at any one time because the studio worked seven days a week and we couldn't. Oh, that changed. <laughs> um, by the time I left, the last two or three years there, I was the only one covering it because people seemed to like the face. And the request, oh, can we have Tony, please? Can we have Tony, please? And in the end, they, I was the only one there with, with my assistant, t- tape operator. Uh, but this led to six and sometimes seven days a week of 12 to 14 hours a day. Oh. And I thank my lucky stars they closed the studio when I was 50 because otherwise I don't think I'd be alive today. No way. You can take that for a bit, but you can't take it for forever. Yeah. But having said all that, the, the, it was dangerous because at the time it didn't hurt. You just enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. And that's, there's no safety valve. There's no, sorry, I've had enough. I'm going home. Uh, you didn't do that. You, you loved it. You believed in it. Yeah, that's it. It's the belief, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, so yeah, that all came to an end in '97, and uh, the head of the department said, "Tail end of '96, this was. We need the footprint of the studio for something else. We by now the BBC had gone into its own internal market, and every department charged its other departments for its services. So um, we in the music studio had to pay." Uh, our standing charges, basically rents, rates and taxes, ground rent for our footprint, and heating and lighting, and power consumption. And our bills at that time were just shy of £200,000 a year. Now, when I, I went out to commercial studio for the BBC and, and fielded these sort of figures, and they said, 
you can't make a profit like that. I said, no, you can't. You know, the place runs at a loss. They hated it because they couldn't run at a loss. They closed down. However, uh, it all came to an end in 97. And um, I was asked if I wanted to go back into television studios rather than music recording. And by then, some of my quite close friends had taken over all the work I had been doing in music, in television. And it would have been awkward to go back. I'd also got to the point uh, where the pension I would get would be worth having. Just say that. The, the discounting for leaving before you're 60 wasn't too bad, down to 50. At 49, it was terrible. <laughs> so I said to the head of the department, can I have the weekend to think about it? And soon I talked it over and, and we worked out that with the pension that I could draw then if I needed to, uh, and the odd odd job we wouldn't have to sell the house or the car a new pair of shoes we might have to save up for but we would survive and so fine I took the plunge I never advertised I just had a phone that kept ringing from people I had been working with at the Beeb oh um, need to do a series of incidental music for such and such or such and such or whatever um, will you do it yeah where are you going where would you suggest? So I was actually suggesting which studios the job was taken to quite often. Um, quite interesting work, actually. Another dimension to just sitting at the desk and, and balancing. Um, I guess when you're you're self-employed in that sense, yeah. there's no more just sitting there on the payroll having to do these yeah. ludicrously long hours all the time. No, you do the ludicrously long hours anyway, and you make sure your charge is going to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> OK. <laughs> so nothing changed, you just got paid no. more. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in the nicest possible way. Um, and I, when, I, when I went freelance, uh, I didn't have the capital myself to, to buy shed loads of equipment. Uh, and I'm a classically trained musician anyway, so I chose to go down the chamber music, classical chamber music line for my work, which I thoroughly enjoyed. One or two excursions into orchestral recordings as well, but um, that was usually for a recording company or a broadcast company who funded the kit. Yeah, uh, done a load of stuff in the Albert Hall. Uh, not as much in the Festival Hall. And one or two other concert halls around London. Um, yeah, it, it was an interesting, quite varied and very different to being in television studios' existence. Uh, the main, the biggest difference is that working for Auntie BBC, if something breaks, you pick up the phone and you call a man who can mend it. And you know he's there because he's paid to be there. He's got the kit to mend it. When you're on the road on your own, you've got to try and find a hire company who's still open at whatever time of night it might be, who can provide you with the spare that you should have had along anyway. Mm. <laughs> a lot I, more stress. In I, that I, sense. I, I was a I was a guitar technician in the early nineties, yeah. and yeah. I worked for a bank called Sensor. The Sensor were assigned to Ultimate Records, and, yeah. and essentially. For the brief period of time, I got a snapshot of all of that. It was kind of, it kind of felt the same. I mean, you're just rolling around trying to fix stuff half the yep. time that got busted. Or um, I always remember like a part falling out of a Gibson bridge or something, and and you know, like suddenly I'm in, I'm in the middle of uh, Amsterdam driving around in a bus trying to find an open <sighs> guitar shop and managed to get to one just before it closed to yeah. to get a screw for a bridge. I mean, it was just completely ridiculous. Mm. But I felt all the time as though 
whenever I was doing these uh, these events that I was just praying things weren't going to That's go right. wrong. Yes, you do everything with fingers crossed. Everything yeah. was really carefully assembled and you'd have yeah. to really consider everything that was going on and make sure there was no mistakes yeah. because if there was anything going wrong, how would you fix it? Mm. You know, yeah, you're a foreign right. country, a completely right. different place. It would be right. really hard to, to know. And the, the one-man band recording a studio, uh, a string quartet in, in a, a disused barn or something, and I did quite a lot of that, um, 150 miles from where I was living, I hoped that I got all the kit I needed when I set off from home. And I didn't know until I'd actually built the studio effectively in this barn uh, and we recorded the first bit. And what a sigh of relief. I remembered everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you really don't want to think about forgetting something. You know, you'd look so stupid. You probably wouldn't work for that client again. So let me just ask you to round this off. Yeah. What do you think about the way TV, media, everything has gone now. I mean, things have you know really changed significantly, in the, especially in the last 20 years, I would say. I mean, for me, it's been a great sadness to see the demise of, of uh, you know, 7.30 Thursday evening. <laughs> what do you think about, you know, what happened at the end of that period and, and, and when you're, of your departure, I guess? Yeah, I, I, I got out when there were lots of internal managerial changes within the BBC, not least of all in television and the technical side of television. When I was there, engineering division, i.e. the technicals, if you like, ruled the roost, and I could say as a humble sound supervisor to the producer, you may not transmit this because the quality is not good enough, and he would have to pull it. That wasn't a good scheme from a manager's point of view because it's a money loser, isn't it? <laughs> so that was knocked on the head. Um, everything was found out everything uh, a bit like the government are trying to do with the health service now sorry i shouldn't say that <laughs> but you know what i mean yeah. um the idea of having a large organization with its own departments that do everything that it needs doing is not seen to be the most efficient way of doing it mm. i still maintain it is because if you do it the other way there's somebody in the way who's trying to stuff their wallet yeah so there's a profit margin that you haven't got to worry about if it's an in-house facility yeah Anyway, that aside, um, the the marketplace for, for broadcasters has changed enormously. I mean, there must be a hundred times as many hours of broadcast sound and vision in the airways now uh, compared to 1990s. Yeah, something like a hundred times. Certainly a hundred times more available to the British viewer and listener. Uh and on the whole, if you make more of something and you don't take sufficient care, the quality goes down. And I think that's what has happened. Uh, allowing for my very advanced years, I don't think comedy is as well crafted now. Uh, an awful lot is stand-up because it's one man and he's either funny or he isn't funny. And if he isn't funny, he doesn't come back next week. That's quite simple. Uh, if you're putting together a comedy drama like Porridge and you're wanting six programmes of those, one a week for six weeks, uh, that's an awful lot of things that can go wrong. An awful lot of scripts that actually aren't really terribly funny and you haven't got time to write another one. So the risk factor is enormous by comparison. I can see why things have gone the way they were, they've gone, but it hasn't meant an improvement in quality in any respect. Mm. Not at all. I sit at home now and watch 
television occasionally, believe it or not. (laughs) Watching BBC, being loyal, uh, you come to the end of your programme and then it used to be presentation department. Now I think it's an outfit, commercial outfit called Red Bus, who do all the distribution of the programme to the transmitters and they do all the trails in between programmes. And they come on very loud indeed. So you get out of your chair and you turn the volume down and then when the next programme starts, you've got to get out of your chair and turn it all up again. That never used to happen. There were regulations you had to obey about levels. Um, The general technological expertise is not as good as it was because the training has disappeared. BBC was an enormous organisation. It ran its own technical college. It could afford to have 10, 15% more staff than it needed at any one time. So there was a slack there to train. That doesn't happen. So people have to go and pick it up as they can. And some are very, very good indeed. And some are less good. I think that the the large corporations and the outsourcing of everything, Mm -hmm. actually, when you take something like music or, or TV media or things mm-hmm. like that, I always feel as though that when everything's contained and it's all in-house, mm-hmm. the product is so much better. And when it's all assembled from a section of parts that could be yeah. scattered yeah. anywhere, yeah. all it seems to do for, for a very large uh, portion of it mm-hmm. is just produce mediocrity. Yeah. And I think that all the reason why the, the listener connects... Uh, with music from that era or the viewer connects with comedy mm-hmm. and uh, and content made in those eras is also a reflection upon the fact that this was all done under one house. Yeah. And, and I think that it was a huge team that pulled together and, and knew so much, yeah. so well. And I mean, I'm only looking at it from, the, uh, from yeah. an observation. No, I, I think every word you say is true. Actually, I really do. And it's, it, you'll never see this happen again in the same way unless you can somehow create that again. But it, You've but got it to can't. remove the profit motive. Business of somebody wanting to take their cut is either going to increase the price or reduce the quality because their cut has got to come from somewhere. Mm. The competition in the marketplace means there's a limit to how much the price can be increased. So where does the money come from? Shortcuts. Yeah. Sad, Yeah. but true. And what a fantastic thing to have been able to experience. Oh, so lucky. So lucky. Experience that. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. To have yeah. to been to present in that time, to have seen such a gigantic change in, uh, you know, the golden years going into our, our modern world, our modern musical world, and to have been part of that journey all the way through is just a remarkable And the rate thing. of change has been incredible. When I joined in, in the mid-60s, the working practices were different, but not so terribly different as they had been just after the war, when the BBC up, up their television again because it shut during the war. Um, we hadn't actually changed that much. The kit was slightly more, um, slightly better at what it did, but working practices were much the same. And by the time I left, it was very different. Yeah. Tony Philpot, TV sound supervisor. Thank you so much for your interview. Thank you for putting up with me. 